This is Theology Gaming Monologues, and this is Mega Man 2 and 3, because I cheat. Hey, if you can't pick between them, why not choose both? Rockman, or Mega Man as it's known in the West, captured the Japanese video game zeitgeist of the late 1980s and early 1990s. It integrates fascinating and memorable character design, interesting level structure, well-crafted enemies, the ability to select one's own stages, which was kind of a revolution at the time, and multiple weapons, unheard of in those days, to craft a memorable, long-lasting experience. Harkening to Capcom's specialty at iterative design, however, Mega Man 1 was only a portent of things to come. Mega Man 2 and its follow-up eventually gained the mantle of best Mega Man game ever by just about every possible source and publication. I will offer no opinion to the contrary, even to say that they're both better than Mega Man X, a blight in my life I'll be happy to accept. Keiji Inafune's creation stands the test of time because of this confluence of factors, especially as a game. But why do they succeed? What makes Rockman work so well, even if it's totally derivative in many respects? Mega Man might not be the most innovative of the quote-unquote platformers during the Halkion days of the NES. That title goes to Super Mario Bros., of course. But its revelation lies in a few different aspects of the game. First off, all Mega Man games, including the first, rest upon the restrictions of the NES. This might not seem like a good thing. After all, modern video game developers have all the freedom in the world to create designs of a vast imagination. But why wouldn't this help? Look at some of Keiji Inafune's designs from the original Mega Man, and you might think, these would look better in today's games. Well, if you look at his basic design, it comes from cartoon characters that Inafune watched in his youth, like Osama Tezuka's Astro Boy series, originally a manga, and Mazinger Z, also known as Transor Z, but it's basically a giant robot anime like the Gundam series without as much substance. Personal opinion alert, this allowed the game to appeal to children mostly, but also infuses the entire game series with the whimsy of a Saturday morning cartoon, at least that's from American context. I suppose this particular influence finds just as many fans on the Atlantic as it does in the Pacific, reigning in American as well as Japanese fans. Inafune cites these cartoonish sensibilities as ingrained in many of the artists working on Rockman games. Inafune's design is simple, elegant, and reveals exactly why his characters work, and why the artists who work on Mega Man adhere to the exact same design template, even after he leaves the company. 
Matt Groening, in creating his Simpsons family, took as a general rule that if they were to be memorable characters, they needed to be able to work in silhouette. While this isn't an exact comparison, it's easy to see that Mega Man displays a striking image owing to the recognizable nature of the character at a glance. It's the same case as a Mario or a Sonic, and what doesn't work with Crash Bandicoot or the hundreds of other mascots for companies that never really captured the hearts of gamers everywhere in quite the same way. Lastly, the design has childish elements, but isn't totally cutesy like some of these various mascot-type things can become. It's difficult to quantify this, but the difficulty in appealing to all audiences lies in either making the character too cutesy, making him only appeal to younger crowd, as in the Mega Man Powered Up remake on PSP, or the opposite error, making him look too adult and manly, and thus becoming a little bit weird and unsettling to younger audience. If you've ever looked at the box art for the original Mega Man, I think you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Hence, Inafune's design succeeds on both fronts. While character design, you could say, becomes a small piece of the overall gaming puzzle, it helps to understand a character's enduring popularity. He works because he can be identified as a cartoon character who can perform amazing feats, and a super fighting robot, har har, who can destroy whatever evil lies in his path if necessary. It takes a lot to make a character that works right off the bat, but Inafune nailed it on the head. Even a pixelated version of Mega Man works if given the right context, which would be the 1980s and early 1990s. (laughs) This also shows how limitations actually help designers. Most great works of art are built by rules and constraints that are self-imposed on the artist. The NES, according to Inafune, talking about Mega Man 1, presented many limitations in the process. The man who set this whole project on his feet is a really strict guy, and at the same, he knows exactly what he wants and is not willing to settle for anything less. Most of what I know about making games, I learned from him. At hardware, the NES can be pretty weak, so we often had to twist our brains to figure out how to do what we wanted. Yellow Devil, for example, which is the big yellow creature that you've probably seen in a million Mega Man games, was such a physically large creature, and we knew it would be too boring if all we had was an expressive background and projectiles as weapons. That's when he would tweak this and that, pulling out every trick in his hand to bring the game up to another level. I often found myself saying things like, seriously, you can do that? And so how this is how games are made, while I watched him work. So if you want to aid your listening experience right now, I recommend you go look up the Yellow Devil fight in Mega Man 1. If you've actually played Mega Man 1 or any game in which this particular boss fight appears, you'll also probably have a lot better context. The boss fight pretty much works self-explanatory, but imagine the planning and timing that go into making that work. You've got to first understand the timing of Mega Man's jumps, second, determine what the weak point of the boss is, and third, how much damage the boss can inflict. How long are you invincible after you get hit so it's not unfair to the player? There's a lot of elements that go into making such an effort successful, and the original Mega Man game nails a great deal of these tiny little details that not just any platforming game just has innately. Plus, the enemy's patterns might be easily perceivable, and the threat has to be real while still retaining the art style translated into 8 bits. Each component has to be made appealing and identifiable both through sound and audio to make it possible to succeed. That becomes a lot to ask for a simple action game, yet all these mechanical and aesthetic pieces all fit into the greater puzzle of Mega Man games. Tiny changes in design choices have much to do with Mega Man's success as a game, not just as an aesthetic exercise. Mega Man, according to quote-unquote Ego Raptor, which you might know from YouTube fame, has a specific jump at arc that was actually copied into Mega Man X because, hey, it works. 
For every platformer, there's a specific jump speed, arc, and fall speed that has to be monitored. Furthermore, the design of the stages has to support this mechanic, or else the stages don't work properly. Bubsy, a forgotten mascot game, has a high jump mechanic, but the levels fix the camera too close to him, making the jumping easy. In fact, many times you can jump and die off-screen through no fault of your own, because, simply put, the game just isn't designed well. Mega Man makes these deaths entirely your fault. You can learn from your mistake the next time, and proceed. Many Mega Man levels also contain quote-unquote training sections. They present the obstacle in a somewhat safe environment that allows you to have a preview of the next section of the level. Take, for example, the Hammer Joe enemy, the guy who kind of, like, whips the bowl around his head in Mega Man 3. Basically, Hammer Joes swing the quote-unquote hammer, which is not really a hammer, around their head for a set amount of time. At the end of their swinging, their eye will begin changing color and release. It is at this point that they are vulnerable to attack, and at this same time, they will also release the hammer. If you get hit, you take damage. The point, though, is that you actually learned how to defeat the enemy through trial and error in the context of the level. They didn't have to throw a tutorial screen in your way, for example. Thus, the next time, you'll find a different method to kill the enemy more efficiently without taking damage yourself. You might jump, or in Mega Man 3, you might slide. Either way, you'll use a technique, learn the timing, and defeat the obstacle. It doesn't feel cheap or broken because the developers taught you how to play without you realizing that a tutorial was happening. This gets better as they go along further in the Mega Man series, but it is very much relevant even to the first few games. Mega Man 1 might be an exception to this rule, but Mega Man 2 almost perfectly nails it, except for the dumb boss with the crash bombs. Mega Man games basically teach you how to play without any real nudging from the game. We don't need text boxes or lengthy teaching sessions because we teach ourselves. Secondly, the game rests on one mantra, a system that utilizes simple control but offers deep gameplay. I don't really like the neologism gameplay because it's a weird non-word, it's like saying you do book read. <laughs> but this quote, which is by KG again, tells you everything you need to know. The jump system and the light contribute to the complexity because it offers enough variation for the player to use. The levels, furthermore, work with the limitation of the player. For example, why doesn't Mega Man crouch, or we can say alternately, why don't games where Mega Man can crouch actually work all that well? I often heard people say, Mega Man can't crouch, but we actually had a dot graphic of him crouching while we were working on Mega Man 1. On the NES, with only a split second to see the slight height difference, the player wouldn't really be able to differentiate between a projectile that could be dodged by jumping and one that could only be dodged by crouching. That was the reason why we decided to go with a jumping-only system for Mega Man 1 and 2, and I think we did a good job refining it. Honestly, who would have thought that crouching was a design choice rather than a strange oversight? True enough, the crouching in Mega Man X5 and onward, for example, don't work as well as it should for exactly this reason. This means the game can throw an overwhelming amount of bullets and shots at the player who now has to worry about several different angles of attack that are randomized. While this might work in, say, a bullet hell shooter like Escaluda, it simply has no place in the design of a Mega Man game. It engenders what I'd call lazy design. If you give a player too many tools, it becomes difficult to understand which ones work at which time in a platforming game. I mean, let's let's be honest, it's a platform game, you jump around and you shoot stuff. Jump to shoot, man, you know. <laughs> you get cheap deaths that impose impossible situations on the player, who can smell that kind of problem a mile away and can see it. 
I would say Mega Man X6 exacerbates this problem the most because the enemy attack patterns come in all places at all times and there's a lot of stuff that you can't really avoid without just memorizing it, which is kind of the bane of most platforming games. Back in the day, you pretty much had to memorize every single obstacle to pass. I mean, if you try to play Ninja Gaiden right now, the original Ninja Gaiden on NES, not the arcade version anyway, you pretty much have to memorize every single obstacle going through, and if you don't, you basically will die. And it's not all that fun. I mean, there's there's a fun in the challenge of memorizing all this stuff, but I would imagine most people don't find that an interesting challenge. Memorization is not an interesting challenge because all you're doing is just remembering a bunch of things in sequence. You know, you can use various techniques to do this, even in studying for tests or whatever. But that's not really what video games are about. Mega Man does not encourage memorization. If it did, I would imagine its popularity would have never come to pass. Rather, it engenders a combination of reflexes, instinct, and skill. It tells you to learn things, not to memorize. There's a difference between being good at remembering things and actually learning a concept in its fullest respect. And I think that's to Mega Man's credit. Is memorization a bad thing? I wouldn't say no. It would, you know, some games work solely because memorizing patterns is an interesting mechanic in itself, especially if the patterns of a boss or an enemy vary with time and aren't necessarily locked into place, which is why Bullet Hell Shooters is such a good example for this. Rather, Mega Man presents systems that a player doesn't have to memorize simply because he or she has been given the tools to deal with new and different obstacles over the time spent playing the game. That's the mark of a good game design. Lastly, the aspect of choice becomes an essential part of the experience. I suppose we could add getting stronger, but I'm not sure if that's exactly the feeling that Mega Man is. I would say that's more of the feeling that they're trying to give you, but that's not what's really happening in the actual design of the game. There's a difference between the intent of a designer and the impression they're trying to give you. Right, giving you lots of weapons is, you know, adds variety and it also can add interesting level design to accommodate the weapons like in Wily levels. They can't necessarily be overpowered if you get them because, if so, no one would remark upon the game's difficulty with anything but a sigh. What they do instead is create the quote-unquote weakness chain that most people remark is interesting about Mega Man. Each boss holds a particular weapon suited to his name or skills. By defeating him or her, you gain that weapon. Actually, there's only one her if I had to guess and that's Splash Woman. But anyway, also, they're all robots, so they technically wouldn't have genders. Okay, I'm not going to think about this anymore. Stop. <laughs> one boss will be weak against any one of the other weapons, for the most part. I think this applies only to Mega Man 3 onwards, because two multiple bosses have lots of different weaknesses. But here, the trick is always to start with the easiest boss and experiment with the others. Back in the day, you just couldn't look up the patterns, so this added an element of educated guesses and inference to the mix. You could certainly guess that, for example, fire would be weak to water and ice to fire, but it isn't that simple once you start talking about robot masters that don't have an obvious elemental weakness. What weapon works against... Quick Man? <laughs> well, what can slow him down? I mean, obviously, Flash Man is not the answer that comes to your mind immediately, but eventually once you figure out what his ability does, it makes a little more sense. There are simple little puzzles that make sense only when you know what a robot master's weapon actually does, which is, you know, just another layer. Starting to observe these layers show that they're not complex, but they add a lot to the fun. Full disclosure, I'm a hoarder when it comes to Mega Man weapons. If 
if it wasn't for bosses, I probably would never use them unless absolutely necessary, because I just like the feel of the normal, you know, jump and shoot man. I realize this probably isn't what the designers intended, but I use the Mega Buster, which is the default weapon, as often as possible to preserve the weapon energy of everything else. I'm not sure if this is a subconscious thing rather than an active decision on my part, but I play the game as strictly as possible in that regard. That's not a bad thing, though. If you want to play around with bombs, ice shards, cut boomerangs, and the menageries of different devices, more power to you. you. The game isn't limiting the player's abilities by presenting weapons in any way. Rather, you can play your own way, quote-unquote, in the context of the game's systems, and in the developers won't punish you because it works within the caveats they've already set in place. Thus, as far as weapons being useful in later Mega Man games, I can't say if it's true because I, I don't use them. Maybe that's why I even like the later entries in the series, such as 4, 5, and 6. These have pretty useless weapons, except for killing bosses, as far as I've read and as far as I've used. However, Mega Man 1 was never perfect in this regard either. Some of its content shows the developers creating a new game for the first time, with the vestiges of the old arcade system still in place. Note on the top of the screen the score, which doesn't actually do much of anything in a Mega Man game. Since you're playing at home, I'm not sure who the heck's gonna look at that score anyway. Unless you're a speedrunner, haha. If it wasn't designed for the arcade, why the heck is that thing in there anyway? Some of the segments use excessive vertical level design that, frankly, bogs the segments down when you fall two or three segments of the whole level. Later levels require the use of items or weapons, and if you didn't know that in advance, you can't make it any further in the level. Capcom's first try, for whatever reason, never seemed to surpass expectations. They always take a good idea, make a competent first effort, and then reformulate the game in a way that completely exceeds expectations. Thus, Mega Man 2 is on my personal list, and not the first game. If the first game represented the first iteration of a true jump a shoe man formula, Mega Man 2 gives the player more options than the first game, and simply integrates every element into a more holistic experience. Like a good sequel, it adds more and more devices and mechanics to enhance the game, and almost nothing detracts from it, except for the Crash Bomb boss. As far as a game made in three months can be, shock, Mega Man 2 represents the pinnacle of the formula. First, many more obstacles and traps are presented to the player. As a response, the developer gives several items, 1, 2, and 3, usually used as platforms to navigate the tougher platforming sections. The disappearing blocks of Heatman stage, for example. The enemies hit harder and come in greater number, but E-Tanks allow players of most skill levels to succeed without having to restart the game, like the original. This was an interesting design choice. Most games demand perfection, but this one said, you can make mistakes, and you'll still live. Even Inafune's mentor wasn't sure whether E-Tanks were a good idea, and in subsequent iterations you'd find that it wasn't really a great idea. However, letters to the Capcom office suggest that not every person could attain the level of skill required to beat the last levels of the first game without taking hits, which is what the first one pretty much made you do. I'm sure arcade purists would come up at arms against the game for this reason, but it's totally consistent with the design philosophy at work. If you want to teach a player to play the game, the E-Tank allows them to continue playing in a situation where they might die and have to return to the beginning of the level. It's a balance between the need for accessibility and the need for difficulty. As with everything in the Mega Man series, the use of the E-Tank is purely optional in Mega Man 2. As for me, I, uh, I usually don't nowadays. When I was younger, I would as I didn't have the requisite skill set. Now, I can create arbitrary challenge for myself because I like playing that way. Same with not using weapons against bosses if you're into that sort of thing. 
For level design, many of the vertical sections have entirely disappeared, replaced by horizontal platforming that complicate the obstacles with additional enemies, traps, and contexts. Let's say the levels are memorable in the sense described above because they add many of these learning moments into the game. Furthermore, these learned obstacles go right into the final levels, which mix these skills together and test the player's knowledge of the game and of the weapon selection. That's why Mega Man 2 becomes so satisfying, as it tests everything the player learned repeatedly and constantly. The Wily levels after the initial 8 are there simply to challenge you with the tools and skills you've gained in the rest of the game. By the end of facing Dr. Wily as an alien, SPOILER, your ability to dodge, shoot, and avoid damage becomes paramount to survival and it's all up to you and possibly too many E-Tanks depending. And also maybe your ability to aim the bubble lead correctly because that's the only weapon that can damage him. Thus, it doesn't feel like you had to memorize, you learned, adapted, and fit everything into your own playstyle and came out victorious. That's why Mega Man 2 succeeds, it adds to a formula, and those additions don't detract from the game's initial design. Mega Man 3, on the other hand, adds even more stuff and does it well. Inafune doesn't appear too pleased in many aspects of the game, but Mega Man 3 adds additional mechanics that keep the mantra of simple complexity. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Mega Man gains the move slide move in an active alternative to crouching motions. While enemies usually don't attack in a high-low fashion, it usually works as an additional move and is required in some levels, which will indicate where to slide in most cases simply by visual appearance, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> of course, a slide can be used offensively under an enemy as well, making it both an offensive and defensive option in combat. The game also adds additional personality by turning the items into rush, Mega Man's faithful robot dog. Now he turns into the items necessary for progress in some of the stages, the dock robot ones anyway. Proto Man, a nemesis and friend, appears throughout as tiny tests of skills for some players, and he basically forces old Mega Man veterans to learn to slide repeatedly, again showing design elegance. The dock robot levels are especially ingenious, as they co-opt elements of the previous game, fight bosses again, and requires you to finish the levels twice as long as before, adding a new layer of challenge once again. And, you know, E-Tanks as usual. The final boss is a bit of a disappointment, as he dies incredibly easy if you know the weakness, but I suppose these are the tough decisions one has to make when deciding between one game or the other. All of this is, again, wrapped up in an attractive and appealing package. The music especially reminds me of a carefree childhood and is incredibly catchy to boot in nearly every way. Does anyone who plays video games not know Wily Stage 1 from Mega Man 2? Or any of the myriad themes from each level, the ro eight robot masters, each with a unique setting to go along with it? I'm pretty sure I can name any of one of them right from the first few bars. This is intentional because, hey, it's Rockman, and Roll is his sister, Blues is his brother, Bass and Trouble would come along later, making their names make no sense once they transplanted from Japan, but I digress. Seriously, just go look up music on YouTube. Any music Capcom made in the NES era was amazing, and Mega Man was at the peak. The music, in part, becomes just as memorable as any other part of the game. Thus, everything together creates a Mega Man game. Not just the weapons, the characters, the levels, the music, or anything else. I mean, it's this one big experience. If anything, Mega Man games make me feel like a kid again, and that's a pretty rare quality to have in a game. Since Mega Man really was targeted and aimed at a younger market, it probably should, but not to the degree which the fandom surrounding it has grown. The medium has had a short time to grow, yet Mega Man has retained its old fans and gained new ones in return, with multiple series changing the formula, setting, and design, but never the appeal. 
perhaps it is in this element of innocence, somehow in the midst of violent and terrible robot-on-robot violence, that gives us a little insight into Matthew 19. Then some children were brought to him so they might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from them. And a uh, slight variation of Mark 10. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. We can say in pretty much any realm of entertainment that there is always a problem with audience. Who is the audience for your product? What general age group do you want to play, watch, or read this? When you present Grand Theft Auto games to the public, that audience is set in stone. That game is supposedly quote-unquote more adult in both its content and its themes. A game like Mega Man, for example, isn't considered adult or advancing the medium simply because it contains a tired old story of good versus evil and clearly defined good wins against clearly defined evil in the end. What's adult nowadays is moral ambiguity, that things aren't as clear as they seem, and that no answer to any moral question, if it's a question at all, is the right answer. Uh, it's postmodernism. Mega Man, like most cartoons of the Saturday morning variety, seems quaint and outdated in its straightforward manner. I think, though, this contributes to its lasting success in its bridge across most age groups. It gives that feeling of continually getting stronger, of fighting a greater evil, and saving the day. You'd imagine these are things we'd want our children to have, but apparently not. No great work, in my opinion, should become instantly inaccessible to one audience or the other. It has to be universal, for if it doesn't speak to all parts of everyone's experience, how could it possibly be effective in what it does? Seen in this way, restricting the great tag to mature video games represents a form of ageism where the quote-unquote simple games are tagged for the very characteristics that make them great. A Mass Effect game rather than a Mega Man game becomes the standard because it confronts social prejudice or something. Games are growing up, we tell ourselves. They become more like us in our adult years, unsure of exactly what they're doing with all these new opportunities. And yet... The Mario's, Sonic's, and Mega Man's of the world continue to chug along their tracks, releasing new games, creating new fans, continue to innovate, or perhaps devolve in Sonic's case, and try new things within a familiar mold. There is definitely a role for these games, which created the high watermark. They are still entertaining, even decades after their initial release. What will we say of any of Bioware or Rockstar's edgy games 20 years from now? Even the little children, both outside us and within us, can understand this. We understand it innately because the conflict between a good and an evil force exists within the law, as Romans 2 says. For what Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bears witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. And that's why, well, these games continue to succeed and be memorable. Apart from the fact that they're well-designed and interesting to play, nostalgia alone doesn't cut it. It reminds of a simpler time and a simpler faith beyond all the cynicism of real art and real life creeps into the picture. 
They're not a reminder of a bygone era. They are what was true about reality and what was really fun about video games. Being able to participate in that fight for justice becomes endemic to the medium. Even Christianity never was difficult to read and understand as a child. Even little children can enter into the Christian life. Why should they be restricted? Christianity isn't ageist. Neither should video games try to fill in the same ideas. Mega Man appeals to all because it should, not because it's made for kids, though it is, but because everyone can enjoy it. That's why I played them, years and years after release. Should the Rockman Mega Man series go on? That's a question that's been asked long enough, and they've suddenly stopped all production due to Keiji Inafune's resignation from the company and the formation of his own concept in its place. The much-anticipated Mega Man Legends 3 was cancelled unceremoniously, as was Mega Man Universe, as was every other Mega Man-related thing on the Earth. It was super disappointing, to say the least, what happened to Capcom's flagship star, relegated to a few cameos here and there, but not really integrated as anything other than a joke character. Of course, Inafune had thought of this question before, but when he goes to a children's event and sees their smiling faces, he told himself, I have to work harder. What more can you ask? Mega Man will live on, even if it's Mighty Number no. 9. What are you gonna do? Thanks for listening. This has been a Theology Gaming Monologue. This is originally an essay written on Mega Man 2 and 3 on the Theology Gaming website at TheologyGaming.com. If you would like to ask us questions or join in our community of people who like talking about video games and theology, you can go to our Facebook group, Theology Gaming University, and ask for an invite. And, you know, it helps us out. In addition... If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, or if you'd like to really help us out, you can give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And tell all your friends. All right, well, this is Zachary Oliver, signing off. See you guys later.